Worship comes in many forms today. Unfortunately, Stephanie Pierce in Portland, Oregon, decided to create a religion that worshiped a rock legend. It was called the Church of Elvis. No kidding. It was downtown on Acne Street. The church operated like an ATM machine. It was open 24 hours a day. It's coin-operated. It offered a confession, a sermon, a photo opportunity with the king. Drop a quarter in the machine, and you could choose if your sin was a thought or an action. It made a difference to Elvis. The machine was programmed to accept confessions that relate to six very peculiar areas. If you have dirty laundry, dirty teeth, condescending snares, money, overeating, or worst of all, believing that Elvis is dead. And for a buck, the Church of Elvis would conduct a wedding ceremony for a dollar. Now, having already paid for two weddings, I'm thinking about transferring my membership to the Church of Elvis. <laughs> the reason the wedding is four times the cost of a quarter confession, well, it comes with a catering bill. There's a little bag of rice involved in, in the wedding. It's funny and tragic both. Worship center around a dead, yes, dead, as reported by the AP and UPI rock star. How unfruitful and misguided can worship become. Church became so popular called traffic jams that 30 neighbors signed a petition claiming that the church of Elvis was a terrible nuisance to the neighborhood. The church is now, the church of Elvis is now officially closed. It's, it's hard when your Savior is not really resurrected from the dead. It's hard to keep the thing going. It's, it's over. But even mainline Denominations have introduced modern methods of worship. Pastor Kleist of the First Lutheran Church in Stewartsville, New Jersey, had a large sign advertising, and I quote, express worship. The whole worship service was 22 minutes. Came up with 22 minutes because he said Americans only have the attention span of a sitcom these days, 30-minute sitcom minus the commercials, 22 minutes. So at this Lutheran church in Stewartsville, New Jersey, in 22 minutes, you get a greeting, a sermon. They don't get any ideas. A greeting, a sermon, a prayer, a song, interpretive Bible reading and discussion. You're out in 22 minutes flat or you're tithe back, says the pastor. As a quarter machine dedicated to Elvis worship, is a no-hassle, get-it-done-quick, 22-minute express service worship. How about our worship? Is our worship pleasing to God? Karl Barth, the German theologian, once said, Christian worship is the most momentous, the most urgent, and the most glorious action that can take place in a human life. Karl Barth. Christian worship is the most momentous, the most urgent, the most glorious action that can ever take place in a human life. Pastor Eugene Peterson said, as a pastor, I don't like being viewed as nice but insignificant. I bristle when a high-energy executive leaves the place of worship with a comment, that's wonderful, Pastor, but now we get to get back to the real world, don't we? The pastor said, I thought we were in the real world. 
the most real world, the world revealed as God's, a world believed to be invaded by God's grace, and the turning and the pivot point being the crucifixion and the resurrection of Jesus. The executive comment says the pastor brings us up short. He isn't taking this seriously, is he? Worshiping God is marginal to him to making money. Prayer is marginal to the bottom line. And Christian salvation is nothing more than brand preference of the day. Look at Malachi 1.10. Oh, that there were one among you who would shut the gates, that you might not be uselessly kindle a fire on my altar. I am not pleased with you, says the Lord of hosts, nor, nor will I accept an offering from you. Is worship as Bart described it or as Malachi describes it? Is worship pleasing to God or is it repugnant to him? It can truly be either. It depends on the worshiper's attitude and the worshiper's life. And worship is forever. Dan would like you to know that. Evangelism, it will end. There will be a day in the kingdom of God. We're not leading people to Jesus. If you're in the kingdom, you already know him. Evangelism will end. Robbie don't want to hear it, but education will end one day. We will not need, need to, to, to have an education program. Prophecy one day, all the prophecies of Christ will be fulfilled. Prophecy will end one day. Social service, feeding the hungry, taking care of the poor will end. But worship is the one thing we do as believers that will last for all eternity. Worship is forever. We realize that the best and the brightest creatures already know this in the eternal realm. John's apocalyptic book has a vision of four terrifyingly magnificent and wise creatures singing night and day. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and who is and who is to come forever. That's what they do forever. They never stop praising him. In fact, when you turn the books, the pages of the book of Revelation from this page to that page, every moment we run into a scene of worship in heaven. Here it involves 24 elders, and over here it is tens of thousands and thousands of angels, and elsewhere it's the martyred saints, but everywhere in the end, everybody is bowing down and worshiping the Lamb that is worthy. In Malachi, God had become repulsed by the worship of the Israelites because of the way they approached worship. They were not giving God their best. Three R's of worship today. The first one is reverence. Reverence. Chapter 1 of Malachi 6 and 8. Right worship is based upon our reverence. Look at verse 6. A son honors his father... A servant his master. Then if I am father, where is my honor? If I am master, where is my respect? Says the Lord of hosts to you, O priests who despise my name. But you say, how have we despised your name? A son must honor his father. A servant honors his master. But God looks at his children and his servants and says, you have not honored me. Why? Because they've not given God their best. They brought the leftovers to worship. They 
brought blind bulls and shabby sheep and limping lambs for the sacrifice. Look at Leviticus 22, 18. Just, just, I'll read it. You just listen. Speak to Aaron and to his sons and to all of Israel and say to them, any man of the house of Israel or the aliens in Israel who presents his offering, whether it is any way a votive or any of their free will offerings, which they present to the Lord as a burnt offering, for you to be accepted, it must be a male without defect from the cattle, from the sheep or the goats, whatever has a defect, you will not offer to me in worship, for I will not accept you. What they were doing in worship, giving God their leftover lambs, their blemished bulls, was not acceptable. In reverence, we're to bring God our best. How about us? Do we bring God our best for worship? Or is it simply a tag on to an already too busy weekend? Do we come here this morning at a spirit of indifference or boredom, bringing God our leftovers like they did? God is not pleased if we are. God demands our very best. Some Christians who are downright scrupulous about nine commandments forget that there is another commandment that says that we are to remember the Sabbath day and to set it apart for God for worship. Now, although it was the last day of the week, the Sabbath was actually central in the life of the Jew. For three days, the Jew prepared himself to worship. And then three days after the Sabbath, he meditated about what he'd experienced in worship about the meaning. And as the last, the final day of the week, the Sabbath was understood to point ahead forward to the kingdom of God. For a moment, the Jew could leave the world of necessity and enter the world of the freedom of rest in God. As God rested, the Jew was now resting in the Sabbath. And therefore, the Sabbath day was an eschatological act that reminded the Jew of where history was moving to God's kingdom, where he could rest in his worship of God. The Sabbath told the Jew where he was heading. And the early Christian church switched it to Sunday in worship. They were proclaiming something the day that Israel had looked for had now had already arrived and the death and yes, the resurrection of Jesus. What had been looked for and lived for in the Sabbath was now being lived out in the Lord's day. And henceforth, the new creation of God had already begun and the empty tomb of Jesus. And now we wait the final consummation with the return of the Christ. Sunday said to the worship that all of life flowed into that reality and out of that reality of the crucifixion, the empty tomb, the resurrection of Jesus. Sometimes it seems we're gathered for worship on the Lord's day and we're headed somewhere like the Jew and like the early church, but we're not really heading toward the consummation of the kingdom. We're headed in our minds already as to what we're going to do after church. We're anxious to have worship over and done with. We want it to be crisp and snappy and scheduled early so we can get on with the day. Get on with what? Family gatherings, sports and recreation, weekly TV sports extravaganza. 
Years ago, pastor and famed homiletician Fred Craddock said he had a student who for eight years worked at a school for children who had trouble hearing. It wasn't that their ears didn't hear well, it's that they didn't make connections between the words that were spoken and their response. There was a disconnect. And the seminary student, the ministry, ministerial student said to his professor, I just couldn't do it anymore. He said, I would go to work crying. I would go, to, I would go home crying. It was just so sad. These kids couldn't make connections. He said, you know, I remember one day specifically, it was right after the Thanksgiving holiday, there was a little girl, seven years old, by the name of Heather. He said, I, I went to my knee and I put my hands on Heather's shoulders and I said, Heather, what did you eat for Thanksgiving? And Heather's immediate response was, my shoes are red. My shoes are red. You, you see the disconnect? And the homiletician said, I couldn't tell to my seminary, my ministerial student, that when he got in the church, he's going to have those same kind of experiences with church members. He says, it's going to be the same. Craddock says, I remember going to Dallas. I was just a visitor in the church. He said, the music was wonderful. The anthem was moving. It was all woven together in a great thematic way called to a theme of worship that day. And the sermon hit the point and was faithful to the text. And he said, even the benediction, he said, when the sermon was over, he said, I just wanted to stand there in the presence of God because of the power and the presence of God in the room. He said, in the minute that the organ stopped, the man in front of me who didn't know me and I didn't know him turned around and slapped me on the back real loud and said, hey, do you think Tom Landry will coach another year? You know what he said to me, said Craddock? He said to me, my shoes are red. The disconnect of the power of the presence of God in this room. The worshiper's reverence. The first key to worthy worship is our reverence for God. The psalmist says, oh, come, let us worship. What's worship mean? Let us bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our God, our maker, for he is our God. On Revelation 4, John states, worthy art thou, O Lord, and God, to receive power and glory and honor. The focus of true worship is always of reverence. On God. The most common word for worship in the Old Testament is shaha. It means to bow before. In the New Testament, Greek is proskunio. It means to kiss the ring or to bow to the ground. Both words, whether Hebrew or Greek, mean we are coming and prostrating ourselves before God. Henry Ward Beecher was the famed pastor long ago, the Plymouth Church in Brooklyn. For years, people would fly in just to hear Henry Ward Beecher preach. People from all over the nation came to that great church in Brooklyn just to experience sitting at Henry Ward Beecher's feet. On one particular Sunday, Henry Ward Beecher wasn't there. And, well, when the folks saw a guest preacher come out to the pulpit, half the congregation stood up and started to leave. And the guest preacher said, wait a minute, wait a minute, I got an announcement to make. Everybody who came here to worship Henry Ward Beecher is now dismissed. Everybody who came to worship the God of creation sit down and hear the sermon. We can come to worship for a lot of wrong reasons, can't we? 
to hear a certain preacher, to watch our children perform in a choir, to visit with friends and catch up with our church family, to feel an obligation to someone else in our family, to make some business opportunities and connections, maybe just to check everybody else out. But the only one reason is acceptable, to come to worship and to revere the God who created you and saved you and sustained you. Worship is not an attempt to entertain you this morning with, with a homily or, or song. It's not an attempt to indoctrinate you with a particular set of beliefs, though we want you to have good theology. Worship is first and foremost a call to you to gather as a people of God to worship the one who was crucified and resurrected as we await his final arrival. When we come to worship, we must bring God our best. God is creator and God is sustainer. God is savior. Malachi, look at verse 11. From the rising of the sun to the setting of the same, my name will be great among the nations. And in every place, incense is going to be offered to my name and grain offering that is pure for my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord of hosts. From the rising of the sun to the setting of the sun, every nation will eventually worship me. God is saying in Malachi. Eventually, there are no exceptions, you understand. In fact, we we learn from Paul in the book of Philippians, the book to the church at Philippi, that on that day, the God who humbled himself will come as a victorious warrior in the Christ. And on that day, every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. All creation will reverence Creator, no matter what nation, no matter what tongue. And we're called to do it now. Not only reverence, but secondly, results. Let's note the results in the worshiper when we have the reverence. Look at verse 9. But now will you not entreat God's favor that he may be gracious to us with such an offering on your part? Will he receive any of you kindly, says the Lord of hosts. When we worship God as we should with our sense of reverence, our bowing down before him, when we focus our attention on him and devote this day to him, his power and his presence, our lives are ultimately changed, says Scripture. Like Malachi 1.9 clearly implies that the purpose of worship is to entreat God's favor that he can be gracious to us. Worship not only honors God, but it helps the worshiper as well. First of all, one of the results is pardon. We are forgiven for our sins. I, I think about Isaiah chapter 6. Check out I, Isaiah chapter 6 sometime. Isaiah is there in the throne room. He senses the presence of God is in that room and sensing the holiness of God in a sense of reverence, he falls to the ground and he says, woe to me for I'm a man of unclean lips and I live among a people of unclean lips and a seraphim, a divine being, takes a hot coal from the pure fire of God and touches his lips and says, now your sin is forgiven. You see, when we come confessing and worship and reverence to God and acknowledging the crucifixion of Christ for our sins and the power of his resurrection 
to cause our forgiveness, we are forgiven. Not only pardon, but also power. Not only pardon, but also power. Worship gives us the opportunity to tap into God's power. We come with our weakness before the one who is strong. We come with our impotence to the one who is omnipotent. And we come in our weariness to the one who is always the same, steadfast. Not only pardon and power, but also, thirdly, we have the result of peace. If you ever miss church on a Sunday and some, the circumstances line up where you just can't be in God's house on a Sunday. It's not peaceful, is it? Something's missing. There's a, there's a peace missing of the rhythm of your week and the rhythm of your life that on this day, it is God's day, and you're to gather with his people, and you're to worship, and to be gone is to be miserable because you know you don't have his peace. Worship provides the opportunity in our lives for God's comfort. We live in an age of anxiety, and most of the things we're anxious about, the experts tell us, are what happened yesterday or what might happen tomorrow. Our anxiety about what's happened in the past or a fearful future on our half. In fact, worship calls us to draw near to the God who is the same yesterday, today, and forever. The God who wraps all of time into one bundle in his arms and controls it all. It reminds us that all things work out together for good to those who love the Lord and are called according to his purposes. Peace. Ruth Bell Graham said, I've learned that worship and worry can't be in the same mind same time you can worship or you can worry but you can't do both and if you're here worshiping you have peace some of you are old enough to remember years ago we all watched on television we were captivated by the three gray whales icebound off of point barrow alaska you remember they were bloodied and they were battered and there was five miles of ice between them and the, the open ocean and there was just one little breathing hole in the ice between them and the five miles of six-inch thick ice and, well, their only hope somehow somebody had to help them to save them. You remember the world kind of came together and the rescuers began cutting holes in the ice about every 20 yards and somehow they would coax them from this breathing hole to the next breathing hole and they would go 20 yards forward and in the six inch thick ice they would cut another hole and they would coax them. It took eight days and, and sadly during those days one of the whales died. Presumably it just disappeared in the process. But two, they had two left, and they kept coaxing them. And finally, a big icebreaker came, and they cut a path for Putu and Siku to find a way to freedom. But every 20 yards, they needed a breathing hole, a place to come up in the battered, bloodied state of the cold, frozen waters and find breath again. You see, church is like that. Worship is like that for us. Sunday to Sunday to Sunday with a frozen week of greed and a broken world in between. It allows us to come up into the breathing hole, the breath of God, the spirit of God, and be strengthened and encouraged again and loved again and to move forward until that day when we find ourselves in the open ocean of God. Fourthly, it gives us purpose, doesn't it? Purpose. 
When we come to worship and we understand who God is, then we understand who we are and why we're here. We are here to worship God, to live in his kingdom forever, and to bring as many people with us as we can through sharing the good news. We find our purpose. The last R is response. Response. Worship demands a response. There was a mission in Africa, and there was a young convert. She just accepted Christ, and the preacher was talking about the need to sacrifice and to give yourself to God, and she didn't have anything, and she was just a little girl in Africa, and when the, when the offering plate came, she didn't know what to do, and, and she knew she needed to give something, so she set the offering plate on the floor and stood in it to say, I'm giving God my all. Everything. Reverence, results, and response. If you've ever been to church and never felt compelled to give sacrificially to the work of God, you have not worshiped. If you've ever come to church and you're only bringing God your leftover lambs, you have not worshiped. If you've never felt compelled to join Isaiah in the presence of God of Isaiah 6 and say, Lord, I know you've got a job. Here am I. Send me. If you've never done that, you have never worshipped. For true worship is the intermingling of the power of God with God's people in a way that God's grace transforms our lives. I'll tell you what worship is not. It is not an elective activity for you to take or leave. It's not an occasional thing for you to pop in every month or so. That's not what it is. Worship is the central act of obedience to God. If you're his believer, if you're not his believer, you're not responsible for worshiping. But if you believe in him, you have the responsibility to be here on his resurrection day and declare and sing your voice to this chorus of voices and say, he has saved us. Not something we do to please our parents. It's not something we do to pacify our peers. It's not something we do to promote our pastor. It is something we do to honor God. It is reverence and obedience. Our worship will never please God Unless, unlike the worshipers of Malachi, we give God a worship that is worthy to him. Let us pray. Oh God, accept our act of worship today. We come humbly before you and know that you are everything and we are nothing and you are holy and we are filthy and you are powerful and we are powerless. We know that you have created us in Adam and we know that you have redeemed us in the second Adam, the Christ. And know we're headed for that eternal worship in heaven. We will join the mighty chorus and we will say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. Perhaps, God, there's some watching on television or live stream this morning who need to be a part of a church family and come and join us here at First Baptist Church. Or more importantly, maybe there's someone here in this room or someone watching on television or live stream that says, today is my day to worship God with the first act of obedience, to declare myself a sinner in need of a Savior, and to call Jesus my Lord. 
however you call us to respond to the proclamation of your word, may we be ready in obedience. Amen.